This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's my great delight to welcome you here. And on this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss. And then we ask them to read one of their own poems that has been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Timothy Donnelly. Timothy Donnelly has been the poetry editor of the Boston Review since 1996. He was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2012. Timothy Donnelly, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Now, the poem you've chosen to read today is by Yusuf Kuminyaka. It's a poem called Fortress. And as always, I'm intrigued by, uh, in a word or two, why this one? Well, I'd say first and foremost, what drew me to this poem was the music of it, the sonicality, the rhythm of it. And that happened before any sense of really what it might be intending, what it might mean. Then as I began to sort of reread it, I became sensitive to the poem's sense of uh, ritual, which I enjoyed a great deal, almost at times the sense of it's having something of an occult meaning. But the more I read it, the more that sort of sense of fixed and at times even maybe quite obvious sense of meaning came available to me. But then the more time I spent with it after that, I saw that there were mysteries that I hadn't quite noticed in my first few readings. And my relationship to the poem seems to to be increasingly deepening. We've tantalized ourselves and our, <laughs> and our listeners, I think, for long enough. Maybe you'd be good enough to read Fortress by Yusuf Kamiyaka. Oh, I would, I would love to. Thank you. Fortress. Now I begin with these two hands held before me as blessing and weapon, blackbirds in fierce flight and instruments of touch and consolation. This sign means stop. And this one, of course, means come forth, friend. I draw a circle in the red iron clay around my feet where no evil spirit dares to find me. One's hands held at this angle over a boy's head are a roof over a sanctuary. I am a greenhorn in my fortress in the woods, with my right eye pressed to a knothole. I can see a buzz in the persimmon tree, its ripe letting go, a tiny white cross in each seed. The girl's fiery jump rope strikes the ground. I see the back door of that house close to the slow creek, where a drunken, angry man stumbles across the threshold every Friday. I see forgiveness, unbearable twilight, and these two big hands know too much about nail and hammer, plank and uneasy sky. Hewn stone and mortar is another world, and sometimes a tall gate comes first, then huge wooden barrels of grain, flour, salted meat, and quicklime before 28 crossbows and four towers. 
One of the things that strikes me hearing you read it again is the extent to which there's such tenderness and such understanding by the speaker of the poem, who I assume is not unlike the historical figure of Yusuf Kumanyaka himself, the tenderness uh, towards this drunken, angry man, a father, I assume, both from the poem itself and indeed from uh, beyond the poem, from other poems by Yusuf Kumanyaka. Yeah, I felt that too. You know, we've got a little bit of a family. I guess it's a motherless family. We find a lot of those in Shakespeare, I suppose, too. You know, we've got the girl, which you may think of as a kind of sister or sister figure, and the boy who's referred to, who could... I. Sometimes you might even think of that as the speaker himself, but I do think it may also just as easily be another person. And then this drunken, angry man does suggest a kind of father or you know paternal figure for sure. At one point in reading of the poem, I couldn't help but think of Robert Frost. And I think part of why Frost was on my mind with this poem, maybe because we're situated in the woods, maybe because we've got this knot hole with the right eye pressed to it that makes me think of the 40 cellar holes in the poem Directive. Frost, uh, of course, was a master of the dramatic poem. You're talking about the the dramatis personae here, and that's one of the things we tend to do, I suppose, with every poem. We try to figure out who's in it, Mm -hmm. what their relationships to each other might be. That's true. And sometimes what we try to do is try to figure out... And that might be part of it, a backstory or something. We try to sort of locate this poem, which comes to us somewhat decontextualized. You know, it just springs out as its own kind of voice. And then we try to see, well, where could this be coming from? Who could this person be? Under what situation would this be articulated? We do have some facts about the person. He identifies himself as a greenhorn. Green in the sense new, not necessarily the color. I think I I looked it up and I guess specifically it meant the young ox. So I find that particularly interesting. There are some people who would argue this impulse we have to take the strangeness of a poem, of the wildness of it, and to sort of normalize it and to make it sort of bring it down to quotidian human dimensions is in some ways a kind of compromise. But I don't necessarily feel that that's the case. One of the things that I love about this poem is that it has this tension between there seeming to be an actual speaker under particular circumstances, particular pressures, but also the way this particular person chooses to speak is quite distinct from how one might account for one's own condition or, or, you know, situation under normal uh, everyday circumstances. There is also an interesting sense of time passing in the poem. One of the sentences in particular that I'm drawn to here is this, I can see a buzz in the persimmon tree. Mm-hmm. It's ripe letting go, a tiny white cross in each seed. I love how we get the buzz, which maybe well, for most readers suggests uh, bees. Yes. And so you think of the persimmon tree in flower. Then we have a line break, and then we get it's ripe letting go. And suddenly, having imagined a tree and flower, we're now, we got the full fruited tree. And then the, the fruit drops. And then we have a tiny white cross in each seed as though now the fruit has been harvested or collected and even cut into. And so in the space of one sentence, in two and a half lines, we've gone from the tree and flower to the tree and fruit, and then the fruit being ready for consumption. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. We could talk for a long time about this poem, which, of course, was uh, Fortress by Yusuf Kumanyaka. It was published on the May 12, 2014 issue of the magazine. But we want to look now, if we may, to hear and look at or hear about uh, a poem by yourself, Timothy Donnelly. It's Malamut. It was published in the June 30th, 2014 issue of The New Yorker. We're looking forward to hearing you read it now. Before we do that, is there anything uh, anything we should know about it? The word Malamute itself, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, Malamute. Yeah, the title. You know, one of the things I, I like about it, even though it's not part of the word's etymology, is that we get that mal, you know, bad, sense of badness, then mute, the sense of sort of uh, speechlessness. Or, and I kind of liked the way that that suggested, that word suggested a kind of bad enclosure in oneself, a negative inability to reach out and to articulate. And so language became uh, something of interest within the poem, too. With this poem, I was uh, watching the um, video for a, uh, for a, a, a pop song. A kind, I guess it is, it's a rap song, Macklemore's Can't Hold Us. And in that video, it begins with uh, some, some dog sledding. And I love dogs and I love snow. And so the images of that are always of interest to me. And I remember looking at one dog in particular and having the sense that he, just a certain expression flitted across the eyes of it mm-hmm. and looked into the camera. And I felt, oh, that one doesn't think he really belongs there. That one thinks he might be cut out for other work. And it didn't seem even a measure of pride, per se, but sort of insecurity or uncertainty, you know. And I sort of felt a little bit of an identification with that. I thought it would be nice to start every stanza with the same declaration. When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs, which to me, I don't know that I necessarily thought that that sort of bore repeating, but it it seems to have worked out okay. There's something about the sort of flat, unaltered repetition of it that to me felt more like the work of pulling the sled. And sometimes when I read the poem, I try to emphasize different words in the line in order to give it some sense of... uh, variation or, or advance, but um, I, don't, I don't always remember which one I'm supposed to stress in any given instance. Well, do you ever feel that it is going to tell you which one might be stressed on a particular day? I, uh, yes, and if I'm really reading it instead of just sort of going on autopilot, the poem reveals to me which of the words is the appropriate one to emphasize in any given iteration. The poem came relatively quickly for me. I, I torture myself over poems quite frequently, and I sometimes find those that I torture myself over aren't as lively as those that come quickly. It isn't too big a surprise, I suppose. You look for a certain kind of sense of spontaneity or dynamic in a poem, you know, and the ones that come quickly tend to have that a bit. Though, mind you, uh, to, sometimes to give the impression that the poem has come quickly, uh, one has to put an awful lot of work into that's it. That's true. Generally much more than one would like. That's true. That's Adam's curse, right? I'd say that this was probably the work of maybe two and a half hours. And then, wow. some, and then the tinkering that you do uh, in the morning. So, let's hear it. Let's hear Malamute. Malamute. 
When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs, and to the crest of my ability, for never was I a snob about it, moreover, never lazy, day into night through the cold pine forest we were bred to, and for which I came to feel love as fast as others as a blur that slowed around us at our suppers, then watched us twitch in our heavy sleep. When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs, mile on mile convincingly. My tongue construed the forest, no condition not to drape in, identical its pinkness from my open mouth as theirs. The nylon tapes between us, reinforcing sentiment, a kind relief through constant focus, but from what I failed to grasp as did our language. When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs who didn't know I didn't know, but that was what we were meant to be there for to begin with. Yet I could follow them who followed anyone behind us through the forest where what seemed to know but was a shape without sufficient contour hovered, and it proved some trouble to me. When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs, concealing my disquiet. Like a shoulder bone, the forebears said to hurry up now, bury. But everywhere the dirt rebuffed my larger purpose. A fortitude from all the earth had frozen up against me, the pause of whom had brought me nowhere but to shame, to let it drop for another mouth. When I was a dog, I pulled the sled with the other dogs, the way a roof collapses, inevitably, and even as the wind must always push, or it isn't wind, it's air, and I was air that had come to think of it, and some trouble to me the others felt no twitch of, or if they did, our language failed what must have been its purpose, or I won't soon be a dog again. What a fabulous poem. Oh, thank you. Language failing. I mean, they're failing in some sense, but uh, giving uh, an extraordinary insight, I think I'd have to say, into what it might be like to be a dog. I love this moment in the second line where there's a phrase, to the crest (laughs) of my ability, which in some sense is a wonderful uh, failure of language because we would tend to expect to the best of my ability. You got me, yep. But it rather splendidly includes the idea of the dogs coming to and getting over a a bump in the landscape, as it were. Just what I wanted. Just exactly what I wanted. And I went back and forth on that, worried that it might be a little bit of a pun or something. But Would there be a problem if it were a pun? I know we've all been told that we shouldn't pun because it's such an inappropriate thing to do, but... Um, yeah, I, I myself don't see any argument against the pun. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And of course, it's a big relief. I don't really have trouble with puns per se, but sometimes I think of a poem as being sort of like a, maybe thinking back to the Kumanyaka, as a welcoming into a space. I'll say this sometimes with uh, in my conversations with my students. I'll say, there are certain things when we welcome someone into our home that we will say at the door and others that we will say in the living room and others that we might say at the dining table. And to me, a pun maybe isn't something that you would say the, you wouldn't make the minute someone walks into the door. That might be better in the living room. In ordinary circumstances, I would probably welcome, I would welcome a pun into the poem after it's already laid down a certain sense of its 
itself or what the character of the speaker might be or what the character of the overall character of the poem might be. And I wasn't sure if a pun at the door in the hall misrepresented the overall sensibility of the poem. Do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And one of the things about it, though, of uh, which which I think allows it to overcome that concern is that it prepares the the ground for the notion of language failing one. It's a pre-echo if there's such a thing of that. So its positioning, I think, is perfectly appropriate. Thank you very much for saying that. And the other thing, too, that you pointed, I do like that sense of crest, giving the sense of the bounding uh, physical movement of the dogs, which was important to me. But that's that is something I did go back and forth on, but ultimately decided to to take my chances with. Must be fun to pretend to be a dog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm doing it right now, actually. <laughs> but isn't that one of the delights of attempting to write poems, is to, is to throw the voice, is to ventriloquize, is to imagine what it's like to be someone or something else? I definitely agree. And that's even one of the pleasures, of course, of reading a poem, is that you get to try on a different subjectivity or expand one's sense of what's possible in the world or how one might be in the world, even if just for the brief spell that a poem can create. Thank you very much indeed. My Timothy, pleasure. for talking to us today. Malamute by Timothy Donnelly, as well as Yusuf Kamenyaka's poem, Fortress, may both be found on newyorker.com. Yusuf Kamenyaka's latest book of poems is The Chameleon Couch. Wonderful book. And Timothy Donnelly's most recent collection is a chapbook. It's called Hymn to Life. You may subscribe to this podcast, the New Yorker Out Loud podcast, the Fiction podcast, and the Political Scene podcast in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in the tablet edition of the magazine. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Until next time, thank you very much. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to news stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.